Thanks for being with us on this rather dark Sunday morning. Coming up in this half hour, we will bring you the wackiest story of the week. It's a funny one this morning. And a bit later on in this half hour of the program, we take a look at the city of Penticton's highly publicized legal fight, also a highly expensive fight with a well-known panhandler in that city and what it tells us about relationships between panhandlers and city officials. But first, we're going to take a look at what is happening when it comes to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. As you know, the Federal Court of Appeal recently ruled that the pipeline couldn't go ahead for a couple of reasons. The federal government saying that it will still happen, demands from Alberta that it still go ahead. There are many people on both sides of the argument for and against the pipeline. Let's bring in, though, Peter McCartney. He is a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee, and he joins us on the line now. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, The Wilderness Committee uh, has been tweeting about this, uh, has been very vocal about this, and uh, making a connection, uh, saying that the uh, plans to restart the pipeline coming a week after it's assumed that an orca has died off the coast. Uh, What are your thoughts about that? Well, that's exactly it. You know, it's been a heartbreaking summer um, watching now two orca calves uh, starve because they're unable to get enough food into them. Uh, Their salmon stocks are dwindling. And what the court found in its recent decision, actually, is that the federal government had violated the Species at Risk Act because the impact of the tanker traffic, we would see uh, uh, seven times the amount of tankers along the coast here. All of that noise disrupts the whales from their ability to hunt. Um, And so they didn't properly evaluate that. And, you know, you can't drive a species extinct in Canada. It's illegal. And so the federal government now has to go back um, and properly evaluate the shipping uh, impacts. Uh, is it a bit, though, and I agree with you, people were, were saddened to, to see first the CAF and now J50, although some groups are still holding out hope. Others have said it's simply been too long. The, the whale is deceased. Uh, is it jumping ahead, though, to say, yes, she was emaciated? We don't know why at this point, though, that whale died. Well, um, we know that the southern resident killer whales are facing a bunch of impacts, uh, you know, lower lowering of their Chinook salmon stocks, which they need to eat, but also the amount of vessel noise, noise that is going on in the Salish Sea, um, where they've already taken some voluntary measures for boats to stay further away from killer whales. But we know that this is a major contributor to the reason why these southern residents are dwindling down to just 74 animals now. Um, you know, so it, it maybe not a direct connection to J50 in particular, um, although the vessel noise is likely a factor, but we know that this is one of the things that's driving these um, iconic species to extinction right now. Um, even though there have been vessels on the coast, there are tankers on the coast, there have been vessels, it is a very busy uh, coast and has been for many, many years. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we've and we've seen the orca populations dwindling over the last many years. Uh, Trans Mountain would add, um, you know, an extra 35 tankers a month uh, and and once these vessels are all re- these vessels are already driving um, killer whales to extinction. This is this is the straw that couldn't break the camel's back on this one. Uh, so, but how do we explain then that the northern resident killer whales are doing fine, the transient killer whales are doing fine, and they're in the same waters with the same vessels? Well, I mean, definitely, uh, you know, northern British Columbia has a lot less tra- uh, container vessel traffic than. Southern British Columbia, um, 
but uh, you know these these specific populations, for whatever reason, have not faced the exact same impacts that the southern resident killer whales have. Um, you know, the Chinook salmon stocks in particular around the Salish Sea have have fallen recently, and uh, that's that's one of the main contributing factors. Do we know what the whales eat, though? Because uh, and, and we have the numbers of Chinook. You're right. There have been there has been a, a, a falling of the stocks, but it's not as though they eat those year round. They must eat something else for about six months of the year. Um, to be honest, uh, I, you know, I'm not. I'm our climate guy, and uh, so the I I know that they eat uh, Chinook salmon and rely on it. Most importantly. Um, and and other species of salmon, although Chinook is the most important. Um, but uh, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure where else their food sources come from. Uh, what are your thoughts then? And again, this was uh, something that the Wilderness Co- put, uh, Committee put out uh, on social media, talking about uh, the federal government uh, set to announce plans to restart the pipeline. Uh, we've heard from the Prime Minister, and he repeats this line whenever asked about this, uh, saying that uh, he believes and he says that there is a way to go ahead with this project and go ahead with uh, c- with concerns with the environment, with making sure that the environment is protected. What do you say to the fact that he constantly does say that we can do both? Well, I, I have to be honest with you. I roll my eyes every time he says the economy and the environment go hand in hand. Of course they do, but, you know, Dilbert and Salmon don't. Um, you know, this massive uh, polluting infrastructure project to expand the tar sand at a time when we're already seeing these massive impacts of wildfires and hurricanes um, from climate change don't. Um, and so, you know, to, to boil it down to one talking point that he keeps repeating is, I, I believe, nonsense. You know, the, the truth is this pipeline would uh, would massively expand the tar sands, um, continue expansion over the next several decades when we need to limit um, tar sands expansion now and, and basically be done by 2040. Uh, you know, the the impact of an oil spill here on the um, on the south coast of British Columbia would ha- would be permanent, um, and basically Alberta is asking us to sacrifice our sustainable industries like fishing and tourism, um, you know, for another five or ten years of of being able to rip this stuff out of the ground and ship it all over the world. And so, uh, I don't think that's a fair thing to ask our neighbors to do. Um, and and so, yeah, the, I think the the prime minister is just feeding talking points out that sound great, but when you actually look at the details of this project. It's an unacceptable risk for British Columbia and for the world. Uh, and why has there not been, do you think, the same level of opposition to an LNG pipeline uh, in northern BC that would presumably also be uh, supplying LNG to tankers and would also uh, lead to the increase of tankers off the coast? Certainly there's, um, you know, there's a risk of increased tanker traffic on the coast as well. Uh, with LNG pipelines, um, natural gas doesn't spill into the environment in the same way that oil does. Uh, it, uh, LNG tankers are still incredibly risky because of uh, the risk of explosion when they uh, when they spring a leak. Um, but the the impacts to the ecosystem aren't quite the same. Um, and I think, but don't you know, they still make noise? If if one of the arguments is the noise tankers make or is going to be detrimental to the whales, shouldn't there be the same level of opposition in that those tankers would still make noise? Not for the southern resident killer whales, though. That would be the northern resident killer whales, which are are, are doing much better than their cousins in the south here. 
Um, what we what we've been saying is that these these tankers going through the critical habitat of this particular species of killer whales are potentially and likely to drive them to extinction. Um, you can't do that in Canada, and the court agreed with us. Uh, what do you do next uh, then, uh, your group, uh, as far as uh, with this project and with uh, both uh, provincial and federal governments saying it is going ahead? What's next for you? Well, um, we're going to be looking at the provincial government's next move. Uh, as you know, in the last election, they promised to do everything they could to stop this project. And I think now their their approval, uh, Christy Clark's approval, actually, before the last election, um, was based on flawed consultation that the court has proven to be flawed. Um, and so we'll be looking for the provincial government to, uh, to you know, cancel its environmental certificate and start their own review of this project. Uh, we'll also be, you know, just building the story about how um, Canadians cannot accept a project that will increase the tar sands at a time um, at a time when we need to be drawing them down. And sort of where this country goes from here is to take the you know, 10, 20, maybe even more billion dollars that we would be spending on building a pipeline that uh, that won't have any use if the world meets its climate goals and actually use that for a just transition for the workers of Alberta um, in order to, you know, transition our economy into building things like renewable energy, um, transit and uh, and an actual clean post-carbon economy. All right, Peter, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Joe. All right, you might have heard this story from a couple of days ago. It comes out of Penticton, and we're going to talk about the bigger picture. Uh, picture when you talk about or when we look at panhandlers, uh, people who ask others for money, and city officials. And the story out of Penticton involved a well-known Penticton panhandler by the name of Paul Braun. He was banned from the 200 block of Main Street in Penticton, and this was part of a plea deal that was reached on Wednesday. And the plea deal was reached rather than a trial that was set to go ahead. Uh, He appeared in court. He entered a guilty plea on eight counts of obstruction panhandling. And the deal included that he would do 60 hours of community service and he was fined about $145. Now that led to another discussion in that uh, he said because of his disability, he's likely not able to do the 60 hours of community service. Uh, However, this agreement is a bit more severe than what was originally offered to this panhandler back in May and that was when he was banned from being in this area this breezeway in Penticton and part of the argument was the fact even though he had been banned he was still panhandling in this particular area. The uh, court order that he not panhandle in this area will be in place for one year and if he is seen panhandling in this particular breezeway, he could be arrested. Now, if you're wondering how much Penticton, the city of Penticton, paid to prosecute this case, the city says it spent more than $26,000 on this case alone. And that number goes up to about $300,000 when you talk about spending on all of the so-called inappropriate behaviors they witnessed in the downtown area of Penticton just this summer. So to talk more about uh, not the specific details of this case, but the bigger picture of panhandling, because certainly it is something in the city of Vancouver and parts of Metro Vancouver that uh, is an issue for some, we're going to bring in Jeremy Hunka. He's a spokesperson with Union Gospel Mission, and he joins us now on the phone. Uh, Good morning to you. 
Good morning, Jill. Good morning. And I know you can't uh, go into the big, uh, the specific details of this case, uh, but what what are your thoughts about this, uh, the idea of a city taking a panhandler to court and being uh, what some, I would imagine, are saying is pretty heavy-handed? Well, I've heard of a win-win situation and I've heard of a lose-lose situation, and this strikes me as a lose-lose-lose situation because Mr. Braun can't go to where he otherwise would be able to publicly. Um, the city spent as you mentioned, close to $30,000 um, on this case. And then the residents of Penticton, I feel, have also lost in many cases here because their tax dollars um, are the dollars that went toward this case. So not the best outcome. I know it's a complicated situation, and that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, and so so what do you think is what should be done in cases of, and you're right, these are public spaces, uh, people should be allowed to move freely in public spaces. Uh, but when we're talking perhaps about an aggressive panhandler, how do you deal with that? Yeah, great question. And there's a m- major difference between somebody who's not obstructing, not being in the way, and um, allowing other people to use the space and somebody who's aggressive. So if somebody is very aggressive, um, I, I tend to treat that person or to react with that person um, just like you would anybody else who's not panhandling and being aggressive. If somebody um, makes you uncomfortable or makes you, in some cases, uh, maybe fearful, just get out of there. Trust your instinct and leave. Um, if, if the problem escalates, that's when you actually do have to call um, the police or, or something. But those cases are usually quite rare. The vast majority of times, uh, there is no problem. There's just somebody either sitting there or talking there, and uh, they have a much bigger story. Exactly. Is there an issue, do you think, in Vancouver specifically with aggressive panhandling? Uh, I, I would say that there could be issues. Um, I've not experienced many times when somebody's been overly aggressive with me. Um, the vast majority, there's somebody who's just looking for some help. I mean, when people are on disability, to be honest, or disability payments, and they legitimately cannot work because of things like severe back pain, um, the, the payments that they're receiving, the income that they have is not enough to live. Um, so some of them make extreme steps. Uh, like panhandling and they are facing some really tough times and a lot of the time um, they're they're on the street they're being spoken to very rudely people are ignoring them um, they're they kind of feel pushed to the very edges of society so this is a real a real big discussion uh, it is and you're and you're right uh, certainly uh, that's uh, not a good situation to be in but but I think for people too that if it's somebody walking by or happens to be in the neighborhood, it can be maybe not aggressive is the right word, but it can be kind of relentless in that a constant stream of people asking for money and and approaching and asking that. And a lot of people, uh, granted, not in as bad a situation as people who are panhandling, but a lot of the people walking by are also having difficulty making ends meet and can't be handing out money to everybody on the street. Yeah, that's right. That's a really good point. And it's really important that people know uh, know that there's a lot more that you can do for somebody who might be in need than uh, just giving out some some change at one point. Um, number one, I'd say give the gift of acknowledgement. Um, a lot of people just are used to being ignored or and totally feel forgotten. So if you look somebody in the eye and just say, hey, I don't have any money to give this time, that's okay to do. I think a lot of people feel feel that uncomfortable or that guilt when they're or that that obligation to give 
when really you don't have that obligation. I know people who actually set a limit and say, you know what, this week I can afford, you know, eight dollars that I will that I will give somebody maybe in the form of a gift card or some coffee or food if they don't want to give change. That's a really good way of approaching this so that you don't feel guilty. Um, I, I think the key here, though, is when you do feel kind of that maybe that uncomfortable or maybe that that guilt that's a sign a signal to you that you feel like you should do you should be able to do something to help the situation and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give money in that situation but it it is a signal to you that you can be part of the bigger solution whether that be giving to another organization um, or a charity or volunteering so panhandling and giving out money uh, or giving out a gift card or something like that, that might be a way to, that you can help somebody, but it's certainly not the only way, and there may be um, more appropriate ways depending on the circumstance. Right, but that can also lead to confrontation or it can lead to uncomfortable situations if you tell somebody, and it's legitimate. I mean, a lot of people don't have cash on them anymore and don't carry any cash, uh, but to say, oh, I made a donation to this organization, uh, move along. Yeah, no, and I would. that's not what I would recommend. But I'm saying for the for a person who is in that position where they're having people ask you often, you can just be really upfront with them um, and just say, you know, I I can't do this, or you can look them in the eye and just say, hey, I, I'm not able to give this time. It's it's part of being honest, and uh, you don't need to say I've made a donation instead, but you can say I don't have money to give you um, today, but at least you're looking and engaging with that person. And the, the worst thing you can do is become rude or aggressive um, with the actual panhandler. I've seen that where people just don't understand the situation. I've seen people start yelling at, at people who are panhandling. And that at that point, you're part of the problem and you're making it worse. All right, Jeremy, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much. Always good to chat with you. Thank you. Thanks, Jill. Well, as you know, uh, cannabis will be legalized in this country next month. And there are many questions about what that means, not only for what it looks like on this side of the border, but also what's going to happen if people are questioned about it when trying to go into the United States. Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Berinda Rossotti, the CEO of Niche Canada. And Niche is the National Institute for Cannabis Health and Education. Uh, Berinda, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me, Jill. Certainly exciting times, but still a lot of uncertainty. Plenty of uncertainty. And I know Niche has put out a guide for uh, communities, uh, for candidates that will be in the municipal elections coming up and how communities on this side of the border are going to deal with legalization. What about the, the question, though, and there are many people asking the question about if you get asked about this when driving or going into the United States? Well, the very interesting conversation and uh, NICE, the National Institute for Cannabis Health and Education, was founded to bridge the cannabis industry to the mainstream business, uh, uh, professional associations, and general public around what legalization means. Uh, in the U.S. states that legalized, they did it through referendum. So the pro-con side spent a lot of time uh, debating the issue, and um, people chose legalization. Uh, in Canada, uh, this U.S. ban is one of the things that's still keeping a lot of people um, very, uh, not only cautious, but uh, opposed to participating in industry. Um, and when you look at the industry, it's, it's not just the people who are um, actually physically producing cannabis, but we have, uh, we have educators, we have researchers, we have government officials, we have lawyers, we have accounting firms. 
we have many ancillary businesses who could be deemed by a U.S. border guard to, um, you know, have cause concern. So I think one of the things that uh, has happened since this conversation has been going on um, is that we realize that we've moved forward with legalization, leaving a lot of areas undefined for Canadians. And so is there advice then on what someone should do if they are questioned at the border? Because we have seen people who have been given lifetime bans. They have to get waivers for the rest of their lives, pay for these waivers to go into the United States. So if somebody is asked, are they supposed to and they have perhaps consumed some form of cannabis? So should they lie about it? Now, my understanding is, is that there has been one person who has been banned that we are aware of. Um, and that ban actually took place not because of their involvement in the industry on the Canadian side, but it was their involvement in the industry on the U.S. side. Um, there's been a lot of conversation going on about how many people have actually uh, been banned or how many have actually been flagged, which means that you just go through enhanced security pre- procedures when you cross the border. Um, I, I um, in my role, uh, and not being a lawyer, would never want anybody to uh, see, you know, take, deem this to be legal advice. I would, I would encourage people, Nish would encourage people to seek legal advice if they are very publicly, like I am, um, involved in the cannabis industry. Um, but, you know, I have read things uh, such as, the number one thing is that the laws may change in the U.S. and then can, if cannabis legalizations happen there, that um, being banned for being a part of uh, the cannabis industry will be forgiven. But lying will not. Like if you are caught lying to a border guard, that's a whole other level of, um, um, of scrutiny that you will face moving forward. So the advice I keep reading and from the lawyers that we've spoken to is uh, tell the truth. Um, if there is a question um, that you are asked that makes you uncomfortable and that you don't want to answer, my understanding, and I, I'm not quite convinced on this one yet, is that you can just say, you know what, I've changed my mind, I don't want to go. Um, but I, I think that uh, proceeding with caution and uh, the uncertainty is legitimate. Uh, people, uh, you know, have limited amounts of business that they might be doing in the U.S., but um, being honest is really important. Uh, because it does seem like even leading up to legalization before it, uh, I mean, there are people that have gone into the United States. When Mark Emery was in prison in the States, uh, his yeah. wife went into the States numerous times. Uh, clearly, she's a very public figure. She's obviously uh, consumed cannabis in the past. Uh, our prime minister, uh, the man yeah. who promised it, clearly has has ingested cannabis in the past. He will be going into the States, uh, I'm sure, at some point. It, it doesn't seem like there's one tried and true or one rule. No, there's not. There actually isn't a tried and true rule. And I was actually fascinated that um, in the stories we read and uh, the um, um, staff person, that's the senior staff person that was quoted, um, that's still not, uh, for me, a mandate that has been brought down by um, the, the political arm of the U.S. And would that answer be different if it was a different officer? Um, it seems that this this issue has that level of certainty that uh, the answer might be on a um, you know officer to officer basis, uh, maybe based on their own biases. Uh, but there is no clearly written, documented laws that have been implemented. Um, I, I, for one, will still continue to travel, and if I'm asked, I will tell the truth. Uh, however, I'm not as concerned uh, until 
um, government, the U.S. government adds to their list of questions that you're asked to answer, which it says, are you carrying firearms? Are you carrying, um, you know, in, in the excess of $10,000? If they if they add that question to uh, uh, the regular consistent screening that they do, I think then there's certainty. But until that happens, um, definitely there's risk. But we're not sure what will happen when a person goes to cross uh, I know thousands of Canadians attend the NJ Business Conference in Las Vegas that will be taking place in November again. Um, I was at the Grassroots Expo here in Vancouver yesterday, and I didn't hear of anybody changing their travel plans. So I think people, most people that I know will continue business as normal. What this has actually done is created more of a challenge for us uh, to bridge the cannabis industry to the regular um, business community to encourage new people to get involved um, because they do not want to shoulder the same risk because they're, you know, they, they've been very cautious and haven't engaged in any part of the industry until legalization is actually implemented. Uh, do you think that people are a bit wary now of of either applying for jobs in the industry or investing in the industry or kind of waiting for more clarification before doing that? Absolutely, and and I and I think that 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 is what is, makes me um, um, frustrated and sad about what has happened. Is I've talked to and we've had inquiries. Um, from people who were considering looking at um, jobs on the on the science side or the research side, or or people who actually we were working with to publish articles who have said, you know what, can we hold off and not publish that in my name just yet? Um, and their original requirement was, can we publish this after October 17th? So I think that in terms of the Canadian decision makers who have influence across the border. I'm really hoping that they're getting to some tables to have these conversations. You know, one of the things that we do know and one of the reasons that I uh, made a very significant shift into the cannabis space was not only the impact that this has on people's wellness or or the amount of crime and opioid deaths that are, um, you know, decreased by having uh, cannabis legal in communities even for recreational use. Um, you know, part of it is is the ability for us to have a a new economy, a new industry that is going to create um, hundreds of thousands of good-paying jobs in Colorado. Um, The first year, they collected half a billion dollars in taxes, and there was 127,000 jobs that were all 60,000 plus. So, you know, having uh, this kind of uh, roadblock now put in the process now that we're so close to our October 17th date, I think is of great concern to a lot of people. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But, Brinder, I know we'll talk to you again as we get closer to the date and as more questions arise. But thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Well, as you know... Hopefully, as you know, civic elections are coming up in October, October 20th. We head to the polls. So we have been taking some time on this program to look at the various regions in Metro Vancouver, in B.C. And today we are focusing on Delta. And Ian Jack is the reporter at the Delta Optimist and joins us on the line now. Good morning to you. Yeah. Hi, Joe. How are you doing this morning? Very good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Yeah, we're uh, starting to get uh, geared up. It's going to be a very uh, interesting uh, election here in Delta, for sure. What do you think the main issue is going to be? Um, I mean, I think it's going to be various issues. I mean, certainly there's still the, the holdover issue around uh, the, 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 you know, the uh, new casino. Um, I mean, council, the current council has already 
given their final approval for that. So we're just waiting for you know BCLC to give the, uh, the you know the final go ahead. So uh, I mean I think that's going to be you know talked about. Um, you know things like things like housing, things like transportation issues. Uh, um, you know the the agricultural uh, uh, you know uh, land reserve and, and and ALT. So you know that fight for retaining agricultural land while also you know um, uh, you know welcoming de- um, you know development and that type of thing. So that's always uh, been a contentious issue here in Delta and will continue to be. So I mean there there's various issues um, that I think are going to make up this campaign. And when you talk about the region of Delta as well, do you see a big difference between, because it is a pretty large, uh, it's now a city, uh, between North Delta and South Delta, Ladner kind of in the middle. Did the issues change depending on what part of Delta you're in? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and I think certainly the the candidates are, um, you know, the North Delta candidates are certainly have a, uh, you know, a, a much different focus than the ones that are in Ladner and Tawasson, right? So, I mean, it is all of Delta, but it's really sort of three sub, you know, sub cities of, you know, of Delta. So, if you're a voter in Ladner or, or Tawasson, um, you certainly have a, a much different, you know, philosophy than if you're a voter in uh, in North Delta. So, and I think the candidates reflect that. And just to go back, you mentioned the casino off the top, and mm-hmm. is that the casino? So, is the by the tunnel? Is that the that was the yeah. chosen site for it? Um, what was yeah. the reaction from some, or maybe they haven't talked about this yet? But I, I know Richmond often talks about that, or or has said openly they don't want it there uh, because they're afraid it's going to take away from their revenues. Is that a bit of a, a fight, or do you think that's going to become an issue? Uh, well, certainly Richmond. Uh, I mean, right now Richmond holds some cards in that. You know, they can, uh, uh, there's some mechanism, I'm not completely fully up on it, but there is some uh, mechanism in place that Richmond can, um, you know, try and, for lack of a better term, block uh, the casino, you know, from, um, you know, from coming in with BCLC. So, yeah, Richmond has been adamantly against uh, the new casino at the town and country site. And you hit the nail on the head, you know, one of the, uh, the main reasons is because they don't want to uh, hurt the revenues that are coming from the, you know, from the River Rock, right? So, um, and yeah, I mean, the, the casino issue has been, you know, fairly polarizing in the community. You have, you know, one sector that is, you know, fully on board, wants to see it, uh, you know, bringing in, you know, more jobs, more nightlife, more entertainment options, uh, a brand new hotel. Uh, so, you know, you've got that factor and then you've got others. Uh, that are adamantly against it over, you know, potentially an increase in crime, an increase in traffic, which around that area, which is very close to the Massey Tunnel, we all know what's the problems with the Massey Tunnel. So a lot of people who are against the casino think that that's just going to add even more traffic to an already uh, horrendous situation. And, of course, there's that whole money laundering issue that is still uh, you know, out there, and uh, you know, people are are hoping that the casino will be will be stopped or at least stalled until all the recommendations of the Peter German report are put in place by the provincial government. And that's sort of the main argument that those that are against the casino, uh, you know, want to see done. So, um, yeah, another another huge hot topic here in the community. 
Uh, and you mentioned, too, uh, the location right next to the Massey Tunnel. And anybody that drives that way, whether you live in Delta or you drive in that area, knows, uh, as you said, the uh, perfect word, I think, how horrendous uh, it can be. Uh, and also those huge piles of sand uh, that sit there as a reminder of the project that was going ahead but uh, is now uh, certainly stalled. I-, I know it's not really a civic issue, but certainly uh, Lois Jackson, I remember her saying once she got the announcement that the bridge was going ahead, she could retire happy. Although she's not, and we'll talk about that too. Uh, yeah. What do you What do you think? I mean, will that be? Will there be pressure? Do you think from residents and such to, even though it is a provincial project, to get that moving or to get some commitment from the local candidates? Yeah, I, I'm sure that that is certainly going to be uh, you know an issue. I mean, one of the mayoralty candidates, um, uh, the former CAO George Harvey, who's uh, running. Uh, with his Achieving for Delta team. I mean, a couple of days ago, I think early last week, you know, he came out with a press release and sort of a briefer, uh, you know, a briefing paper on what he wants to see with, you know, with the Massey Tunnel. I mean, as the, uh, you know, former CEO for the city of Delta, uh, you know, George was very uh, active along with Mayor Lois Jackson, you know, pushing for, uh, you know, uh, the replacement project to, to go ahead. And uh, George has basically pledged uh, that if he becomes mayor, that that is going to be one of his top issues that he's going to continue to push. So certainly, as you said, it's not a direct municipal issue, but it's certainly going to come up a lot during the campaign. And all of the mayoralty candidates are going to have to, uh, you know, state their positions because, I mean, I think that that is definitely going to be an issue where voters are going to be looking at those mayoralty candidates to say, okay, you know, are you for or against, you know, either, you know, a tunnel or a bridge or some sort of a replacement? And if you are, what are you going to do to push the provincial government to make that happen? So uh, you mentioned agricultural land as well, and that's certainly a topic uh, in uh, Richmond, Delta, anywhere where there is land in the ALR. Uh, do you think marijuana or cannabis is also going to come into play as far as whether or not that's going to be used or there's a ALR land that's going to be used for, for cannabis? Or, or is that part of a bigger conversation then about saving and preserving farmland? No, I think marijuana is definitely going to be, uh, you know, uh, another issue that's going to be talked about. I mean, there currently are a number of, um, you know, operations that are starting to pop up in Delta. We've been reporting about them. My colleague, Sandra Jaramati, uh, has been uh, following a lot of those issues. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're starting to pop up here in Delta. Um, the conversations are starting, you know, to happen that people are, you know, a little leery of, of uh, you know, greenhouse operations, you know, that for years, decades have been producing, you know, things like potatoes and peppers and, and fruit and all of that type of thing, and now are going to be producing, uh, you know, cannabis. So, um, yeah, so I mean, that is definitely going to be, uh, you know, an issue that is probably going to come up during the campaign, uh, no doubt. And uh, you mentioned as well, uh, George Harvey, certainly he has a long history in Delta. Uh, We now know that Lois Jackson, who's been the mayor for many years, uh, is going to run for council. Uh, What do you think about that? Is it it too much baggage or too much uh, of the the old regime that they'll be bringing with them? Or do you think it's more tried and true and people like that? Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, that's certainly what um, you know, what George Harvey is is running on, you know, sort of bringing in, you know, that, that sound, stable, you know, leadership and experience, but he's also mixing that uh, on his ticket with, uh, you know, with some newcomers. Um, 
uh, you know, Alicia Gishon is a young farmer and an, and an entrepreneur, you know, in the community, she comes from a long line of Ladner farmers. You know, she's a, you know, a, a young person, right? Uh, Dylan Kruger, uh, he's the currently the constituency assistant for Delta MLA Ian Payton. Um, you know, another young person, um, Cal Traversy is, uh, you know, 27 year career as a Delta police officer. Um, Dan Copeland is the former, uh, you know, Delta fire chief and, uh, Parm Greenwald is an entrepreneur and a social activist in the, in the community and has been advocating for the rights of farm workers. So George has mixed on his tickets, you know, what he deems as, you know, experience, uh, you know, with youth and sort of bridging the gap from the past to the future. So, um, we'll just have to see. I mean, you know, in early days, you know, there are, you know, people that are saying, you know, we, we want a completely new voice in the community and where it's time to, you know, retire the old guard and in with the new. And then there are other people that, you know, that want to see sort of, uh, you know, some of that, those existing voices and that experience, but also want to see some young people at the table. So it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, where, you know, uh, you know, where everybody's uh, votes are, you know, are going to come from and whether they're going to believe that, you know, we need a complete changeover or whether we're going to have, you know, some of the existing people with, you know, some of the, some of the new faces, right? Indeed. All right, Ian, we'll leave it there. We've used up our time, but thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Yeah, no problem, Jill. And uh, everybody get out and vote. And we hope that everybody in the community, uh, you know, turns to the optimist uh, while we uh, continue all of our coverage here over the next couple of weeks. But uh, thanks for your time and thanks for having me on. All right. No problem at all. Uh, that is uh, Ian Jack. He is the uh, editor at the, pro- uh, sorry, the province, the optimist, the Delta optimist. Oh, sorry, a reporter at the Delta optimist. And again, they have full election coverage in that region of the promise, uh, the province, South Delta, North Delta, Ladner, Tawasin, you name it. They have it covered.